This week I learned a couple of sports-related acronyms that I was unfamiliar with, and so I want to share them with you. Uh, the two acronyms are BIRG, B-I-R-G, and CORF, C-O-R-F. Uh, BIRG means basking in reflected glory, and CORF means cutting off reflected failure. Uh, these are two acronyms that sports researchers, academics, apparently utilize when they're trying to describe the way that fans react to whether or not their teams win or lose. And by the way, I thought of this story before the events of this weekend. So this has nothing to do with anything that happened this weekend. But here's what they found over the years. Uh, basking in reflected glory means that when your team wins, and this is, this is verifiable, you are more likely to wear team colors the following day or the following week. So they did a study of hundreds of college students in class on the Monday after a football game, and they found that if the team won, these students were twice as likely to wear team apparel, and uh, they were three times as likely to wear more than one item of team apparel, like a shirt and a hat, something like that. So they're basking in the reflected glory. They're identifying more strongly with the team. Uh, if the team lost, they were much, much less likely to wear team apparel. So they're, they're corfing, they're cutting off reflected failure. They also found that if your team won, you're much more likely to use uh, we pronouns when you refer to your team. We had a great game. We scored many times. We have great players, right? You're, you're much more likely to use those types of pronouns. If your team lost, you're much more likely to use third-person they pronouns. They should have played harder. They had a rough game. They should have gone for it on fourth and two. Whatever it may be, they should have, they should have, right? So you distance yourself from the losers and you, you, you want to identify yourself with the winners, so you bask in reflected glory or you cut off reflected failure. Why do we do that? Because everyone wants to be identified with winners. And most of us don't want to be identified with failure, with losers. Now I share that because there is a biblical, uh, there is a biblical application to this when we look at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, which is where we're going to be this morning. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Paul is going to tell us that whether we like it or not, all of us have been identified with a spiritual failure. All of us have been identified with the spiritual failure of Adam, the very first man. So even if you didn't uh, decide, I'm gonna put on a shirt today that says Team Adam, you are on Team Adam. And as a result of Adam's failure to obey God and to fulfill God's purposes for his life, as a result of Adam's failure, all of us are identified with Adam's sin. And therefore, all of us are condemned before God and all of us are destined for separation from God, for death, both physically and spiritually. We all are identified, in a sense, with a spiritual loser, whether we want to be or not. And so the question of the book of Romans is how do we get out of this situation? 
And you may remember that for the first several chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has been developing the idea that although all of us are condemned before God because of our sin as well as the sin of Adam, although that's true, although we are condemned before God, God has made a way for us to be declared right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That because of Christ's death on our behalf, Jesus took the penalty for our sin. He took the death that we deserve. He rose from the dead, defeated death and sin. And so now all of us have the opportunity to be declared right before God by putting our faith in Jesus. And so now here in Romans 5, at the end of Romans 5, Paul is going is to help us to understand that because of what Jesus has done, we can now go from being identified with spiritual failure to being identified with spiritual victory and eternal victory in Jesus. We can take off Team Adam and put on Team Jesus. And the beauty of putting on the Team Jesus jersey is that we no longer have to be mired in failure and loss for eternity. But we now live in an ongoing state of grace, of the inexhaustible grace of God, where every time we sin and fail to meet God's standards, every failure is met with the victory and the life and the grace provided in Jesus Christ. So we've gone from death to life, from sinners to righteous, from hopelessness to an eternal hope because we've been transferred from the realm of darkness, from identification with Adam to the realm of light and life, identification with Jesus Christ. That is the flow of Romans chapter five. So that Paul's gonna tell us at the end of Romans five here, the gospel is good news because Jesus' grace has overcome Adam's sin. And here's what this passage is going to exhort us to think about and to consider. When you consider your life today, do you primarily identify yourself with your own sin and shame, your own failure? to live up to what God's expectations are for your life? Do you identify yourself with the sin and shame of your ancestors? Do you say, I am my father's son, my mother's daughter. That's just who I am. I sin because I am a sinner mired in shame. Or when you think about your life, do you first and foremost say that I belong to Jesus Christ and because I'm identified with Jesus Christ, I have been lavished grace upon grace upon grace that is inexhaustible. Is that how you understand your position and your identification? Identified not primarily with the father of the human race, but with the Savior who has given us life. The gospel is good news because Jesus' grace has overcome Adam's sin. Follow Paul's argument with me. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him 
who was to come. So Paul begins by, by laying out the problem here. And the problem is this, Adam's sin condemned us. So Paul goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And he says, here's what I want you to understand. Through one man, through Adam, sin entered the world. When sin entered the world, death entered the world. And then death spreads to everybody because everybody sinned. All right, so, so let's go back for just a minute and refresh the story of Adam. I realize you're probably familiar with it, but, but let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created the universe and the world. And remember, he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where they have fellowship with him and they are tasked with caring for his creation. And God put them there and he, he provides for them abundantly. But remember in Genesis chapter 2, he says the, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Or in the Hebrew, literally, this is you, you can eat, eat, right? From any tree I, I've provided for you fully and lavishly. But, but from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In other words, Adam and Eve were given an opportunity to, to say, God, we trust you to provide for us. God, we trust you that obedience to you is the best pathway through life. We don't have to worry about what we don't have because God has given us all that we need and more. So God says, there's this one tree you're not to eat from. That's not a cruel trick that God is playing. Instead, this is an opportunity and a test to say, will you obey? Will you trust that God's way is better than your way? But you remember, it doesn't take long before, before Satan, embodied as a serpent, shows up to deceive them. And he says this to Eve. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. In other words, God is lying. God is not telling you the truth. You're not gonna die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, the serpent says, God is afraid of you. God knows you could be more powerful and stronger than he is even. You can be like him. You'll know good from evil. You're not gonna die. That's just a line that God gave you because he doesn't really love you. And so we know Eve takes the fruit and eats and then she gives to Adam and Adam takes the fruit and he eats. And as a result, there's a curse on all of creation. And so God says to the woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, there's conflict between mother and child. There's pain in even bringing forth life into the world. There's conflict between husband and wife. Then to Adam, Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. In other words, Adam, you didn't pass the test. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, work itself will become toilsome. You're going to hit Wednesday and wish it was Saturday. You're going to hit Monday and wish it was next Saturday. Work becomes a burden, and at the end of it, you'll return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. And so Paul tells us here in Romans 5, Adam eats the fruit, and that brings sin into the world, disobedience to God. That sin leads to death, and that death eventually spreads to everyone. The physical death, and this is important, the physical death that Adam and Eve experience and that we experience, it's simply an external manifestation of spiritual death. And this is really significant because the spiritual death comes first. They're separated from God. Death is separation. They are separated from God because of their sin. And that leads to physical death. And what what Genesis tells us and what Paul tells us is it was not meant to be that way. I realize all of us have been at funerals where somebody will say, hey, you need to understand, death is just, it's just a part of life. Death is just a part of life. I want us to understand from a biblical perspective that is false. Death is not a part of life. It's the opposite of life. Death is the end of life. Death demonstrates that life is not what it was supposed to be. And so Adam eats the fruit. Death enters the world. Death spreads to all men because all men have sinned. And I believe what Paul means here in verse 12 when he says all have sinned in this particular context is he's saying all of us sinned in Adam. And here's what I mean. Adam served as our representative. Adam as the first of all of humanity represented you and me in sin. He was our first forefather. He chose to disobey God. And as a result, he cast all of creation into slavery to sin and separation from God. Adam as our leader led us into death. Now, I realize you're thinking, well, that's not fair. I didn't vote for Adam. Right? It's very American of us. No condemnation without representation. I get it. All right, but the reality is the scripture says this is how how it works, that Adam is our representative. Now, I did not not choose a lot of things about my life, and nor, nor did you. So your parents were your parents. Did you vote for your parents and who they would be? Of course not. All kinds of decisions were made about your life before you were ever born, where you would live, what school you would go to, what neighborhood you would be in, how much money your family had. There were all kinds of decisions. There were even genetic decisions that were made before we were born. If I could vote, I would be six foot three. Right? All kinds of decisions happened before we were born, and we inherited the consequences or the benefits of all of these decisions, even though we didn't choose them. And although it's not fair in our minds, it is the reality. And yet, Paul is also going to to show us, and he already has, remember, in Romans 3, that uh, although Adam represented us in a way that was not victorious, in a way that was not the best, he didn't represent us in victory, he did represent us accurately. Because from generation to generation to generation, although we're condemned by Adam's sin, the reality is we ultimately are condemned also by our own. We choose to follow his footsteps. And so a lot of us, you think about it, you may, your parents may have had some foible or flaw that you, that you, you kind of said, when I grow up, I will not do that. And then when you grow up, 
you do that, right? Uh, my, my dad, he had a lot of wonderful qualities. He was, he was smart. He was kind. He, he was loving. But he would even acknowledge that at times he was impatient. And so I remember sitting at, at traffic lights with him, and the light would turn green. And if he was behind somebody, if that person didn't go immediately, my dad would say, come on, buddy, it's not going to get any greener. Right, and I remember thinking, you know, once I begin to drive, I will be patient and calm. I'll be, just be very, very, very calm. And yet now, to this day, I find myself in the same situation going, come on, it's not going to get any greener. We repeat the patterns generation over generation over generation. So the scripture says there's what's called imputed sin. We sinned in Adam. Adam represented us. Right? There, is, there is also inherited sin. Uh, I now am born as a person with a, with a heart that inclines towards sin. That's my sin nature. And then there's chosen sin that I just choose to disobey. All three are true. It all begins, though, with Adam. And so Paul's going to go on in verses 13 and 14, and he says this, uh, this idea of condemnation because of the sin of Adam, it is true even for those who didn't sin exactly like Adam sinned. So he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or reckoned or accounted when there is no law. So, so what he's getting at is simply this, that uh, before the law came, before Moses There's still sin in the world. Even, he says in verse 14, uh, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense or transgression of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. In other words, here's what he's getting at. Adam and Eve had a particular command. Don't eat from that tree. When they ate from that tree, it's very clear, they violated a particular command. Under Moses, the law gave all kinds of commands. Don't worship idols. Have no gods before me. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery, and so on. When people violated those laws, they demonstrated a transgression that could be reckoned to their account. Now, here's what Paul is getting at. Even if you didn't violate some particular command, so like between Adam and Moses, there's no law. He says, even those folks are still sinning just as Adam sinned. It's just not reckoned as closely because there's no specific law. This is his way of saying all of us sin, whether you have the law, don't have the law, whether you did what Adam did, didn't do what Adam did, you're still condemned by the sin of Adam. Think about it this way. If you're a parent, I'm sure you have certain rules for your household, right? Don't run in the house. Don't run with scissors, right? Don't hit your sister, whatever it may be. And you tell your kids, don't do this. If they do this, they run in the house. That is a transgression. You have a predetermined, perhaps, consequence for that transgression. You have to sit in your room for a few minutes. You lose uh, your phone for a few, whatever it may be, you've got a consequence. But then you know that there are other sins, other violations of the spirit of your household that your children dream up that you never would have thought to make a rule about. So when one of our kids was younger, I found said child in the backyard about to to light the backyard grass on fire with a citronella mosquito torch that he and his cousins had found in the shed. Now, there was no rule about that. There was no law that said, please don't light the yard on fire with a citronella torch. It's not a transgression that can be reckoned against a particular law, it is a sin. You should have known better. 
And so Paul says, all of us are condemned by the sin of Adam, and then all of us has simply followed suit. And so now we stand in this place where we are identified with the sin of Adam. Whether you like it or not, you wear Team Adam jerseys. All of us. And so how do we get out? Well, he goes on and he says, here's here's the really good news. Although Adam's sin condemned us, Jesus' gift now saves us from this predicament. Follow with me, verses 15 to 19. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So, so here's, what, here's what Paul gets at. He says, okay, first of all, I want you to understand Adam serves in some respects as, as what he calls a pattern or a type of Jesus, that Adam is our representative and Jesus is our representative. Those identified with Adam bear certain consequences of Adam's actions. Those identified with Jesus receive certain benefits of Jesus' actions, right? So, so both of them represent us. That's the pattern. That's the type. But then he goes on and he says, but I want you to understand that the gift of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, is different from what Adam did in some really significant ways. That the gift of Jesus Christ is different from what Adam did, first of all, quantitatively, in, in, its, in its scope, in its abundance. He says, although the sin of Adam spreads to all men, you need to understand, much, much more does the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ cancel out the sin of Adam and bring people not only to forgiveness of sin, but to reconciliation. Remember that shalom before God. And not only shalom with God, but also eternal life. Not only existence and life, but abundant life and super abounding grace upon grace. In other words, he says, the, the, the magnitude of the work of Jesus Christ so overwhelms the magnitude of Adam's sin that there is no, no contest between these two teams for those who are in Jesus Christ. So that those who know Jesus Christ can trust that there's life upon life and grace upon grace. Part of the idea here is it's actually not all that hard to kill something to destroy something doesn't take a lot of power, but it takes infinite power to bring life out of death, to resurrect the dead, to bring spiritual hope where there was spiritual hopelessness. 
And so the magnitude is greater, but also the, the quality of what Jesus did is different. Where Adam's sin brought death, Jesus' obedience and righteousness brings life. Where Adam's, sin brought, uh, brought, uh, when, where Adam's disobedience brought sinfulness to us and we became sinful, Jesus' obedience makes us righteous. So we've gone from death to life, sin to righteousness, hopelessness to hope, from Adam to Jesus. So both quantitatively and qualitatively, we're in a different realm. We're in a different status. We're in a different place. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were, you were walking through this desert. This is the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's known as the driest place on earth. There are areas of this desert that have not received a drop of rain for 500 years. Unbelievably dry. Imagine you're, you're walking through and, and you're lost. And you've been there for days. And you're dying of thirst. And you need life. And then you're rescued. Somebody shows up and, and, the, and they rescue you. A helicopter suddenly drops from the sky, lifts you up, and now you're saved. And the first thing you say is, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water. And so, so somebody in that helicopter hands you a drink of water, but then they say, I'm going to do you one better. And they fly you here. This is Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, the largest never-ending sheet of water in the world. And they say, look, you, you were here, now you live here. And they build you a house at the top of the falls. Even better, at the bottom of the falls. Wouldn't that be something? And you have infinite water forever and ever. You will never thirst again. Paul says this is the contrast between what Adam did and what Jesus did. You have gone from condemnation to justification. You've gone from death to life, from sinners to be, being declared righteous. Now, in verse 17, he says that this identification with Jesus, it is available abundantly to everybody who receives this gift of grace, receives this gift of righteousness. So the magnitude of Jesus' grace is infinite, and all we have to do is step into the falls and say, I receive it. And you receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, look, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's why Satan came. That's why he showed up in the garden, to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he was successful. And so now you're identified with Adam and Adam's sin and Adam's sin has condemned us. The, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He goes, I came that they may have life. And then I love this. It's not just life. He says, I came that they may have it abundantly. Super abounding life. That's the idea of the Greek term that we see here as well as in Romans 5 that talks about the abundance of the grace of Jesus. Super abounding. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Life upon life upon life upon life. Not only life that never ends in its duration, but life with a quality that can never be fully understood or depleted. Abundant life. Peace with God. 
peace with others, a hope that never dies. I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. By the way, we said a few minutes ago, hey, it's, it's really not fair that Adam represented us and we benefited from all of the sin of Adam. That's not fair. This is no more fair that Jesus represented us and we've been lavished all of these blessings, not because of something we did, but because of everything he did. So you say it's not fair that I died in Adam. Well, it's also not fair that you're alive in Jesus, but you get to experience the benefits. And we don't complain about that one, but we rejoice. Adam's sin condemned us. Jesus' gift now saves us. And so where Paul closes this passage in verses 20 to 21 is he says, because of that, grace now reigns over us. Grace now reigns over us. Look at verses 20 to 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we said a moment ago, you've been now transferred from from the kingdom of death, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of life and righteousness. You've been moved from one place to another, and now you live under the reign, under the lordship of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is why Colossians chapter 1, Paul says it this way, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You've been moved from team Adam to team Jesus, from the kingdom of sin to the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And he says the upshot of all of that is, he says now grace abounds where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What is he saying? Every sin and failure is not only matched, but also exceeded and met by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can never exhaust his grace. I had a friend in high school who told me that he and his father used to sometimes go to a local restaurant that had an all-you-can-eat buffet. And not only was it an all-you-can-eat buffet, it was an all-you-can-eat buffet to go. So you could walk in and get many, many boxes and fill them up to the brim with food and then leave and eat for days for, you know, this was like the 90s, so it was probably like $6.99. And he was like, it's great. They never run out and they replenish it and we fill it up and we go home and, and we eat for days. And they went out of business because that's a failing business model. Because they ran out of money, sometimes they ran out of food, it didn't work. They didn't have inexhaustible resources to meet the need. They didn't have inexhaustible food to meet the desires of people who were that hungry and greedy. But here's what Paul says about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Every sin and failure is met with grace. You could never sin enough to exhaust the grace of God. 
Let that sink in for a moment. There is no sin that is large enough to deplete the reserves of his grace. There is no number of sins that is too much where God will say, you know what? I'm out of the grace business. I'm closing it down. It won't happen. Grace upon grace upon grace. If you have received the abundance of grace of life given by Jesus Christ, you've trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you your sins and offer you eternal life. You've trusted in him. Grace is now the air you breathe. It's the ground you walk on. It is the kingdom that you live in. Grace surrounds you and grace protects you and grace leads you home. So that's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now, but now I see, I see that I live in the realm of grace forever and ever and ever. Eternal life as a gift by the grace of God. And all we have to do is receive it by faith. Now, now next week in chapter 6, Paul is going to dive into a question that this always raises. And it is simply this. If there's nothing I can do to lose eternal life, if there's no sin I could commit that would deplete or, or remove God's grace from my life, if that is true, then what's to keep me simply from sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning as much as I want? Why not just have a blast sinning knowing that God will forgive me anyway? Paul will answer that in chapter 6. But before he gets there, we have to understand the magnitude of the grace of God. That, that, that the grace of God is so great that it has overcome the sin of Adam. And so now we are identified with Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus Christ alone to forgive your sins and give you eternal life? And if so, do you live as if it's true that he loves you so much that his grace will keep you and hold you even in your sin and your failure. Because now you are no longer declared condemned because of Adam. You're declared righteous because of Jesus. And your new status is righteous. That righteousness began the moment you trusted Jesus and it extends into eternity. There's nothing you can do to lose it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. And Paul will come back to that in Romans 8. It's inexhaustible. So again, when you think of your life, do you identify yourself by your sin and your shame? Do you find yourself moving away from God because you're afraid that you still stand condemned and he might pull away his love and his grace from your life? Or do you find yourself in those moments of sin and shame and darkness saying, I'm going to move closer and closer to God because that's where the abundance of grace is found. Grace 
upon grace upon grace. Where we sinned, God met it with grace. Every single time. Do you believe that? Do you rejoice in that? And will you recognize, again, we live under the reign of grace forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful. We've gone from death to life, from condemnation to justification. We have superabounding grace. No longer do we stand condemned, but now we stand justified. Lord, give us security and assurance that you never run out of grace. You have more than enough to meet our need. More than enough to reconcile us to yourself because Jesus paid it all. Father, we pray we would live in that reality. Believe that reality. And never let go of the truth of the grace of God from now until eternity. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are so grateful that you were here this morning. Numbers chapter 6, the high priestly blessing. Aaron says to the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next time.